Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I am Adam Pawatic, sitting here with my other co-host, Aaron Cameron, at the Canadian Apartment Investment Conference. We are sitting with James Wilson, who is co-chairing the entire event and also the managing director of RealStar. Welcome to the podcast. What's harder, co-chairing the apartment conference or your day job? I'd have to go with day job on that one. Only because you don't know who's listening? They do a great job at getting us organized here. And so I will give credit to Informa, who does a lot of the heavy lifting, and put on a great event. More people than ever here and fun participation from the premier. So... Did you Fun know the, so the total uh, headcount today? I've been told it's uh, around 1,000. So. Which has got to be up from previous years, I think. I think uh, historically it's kind of been seven, eight, six in that range. So good signs for the apartment industry. Indeed. Yeah. Growth sector. So we can jump, uh, I guess, jump into it. How did you get into real estate and what does RealStar do? I got into real estate first job was CBRE. When I was in university, in fact, in summers, I photographed industrial buildings for the CBRE office in Montreal who is new there. Why did you do that? Was that to, by defeat, design? Or was that just like, a... you went through and was like, what's the first person that'll offer me a job? It was pretty much that. And you know, they needed a database and were new to Montreal. And I knew some people there. Had an interest in the asset class, but then you know, got into law instead. Was a lawyer for five years here in downtown Toronto. Loved that. Did a lot of infrastructure legal work, which became more and more interesting to me, especially the people I was dealing with on the business side, and thought I'd rather be in that chair than my chair, and went, did an MBA, focused on finance, and came back to Toronto looking for a job in hard assets, whether it was real estate or infrastructure. I was interested in the two. Lawyers have a little bit of an advantage, I find, in those sectors because it's revenue that's really contractual-based, and so your understanding of the contract has a big impact on the cash flows over the 10-year period. And the nuances of the paragraphs that get caught up in those agreements. Exactly. Hopefully, uh, you know, rental is actually, of all of them, probably the easiest, where you use your legal skills the least because leases are pretty standard form. But that sector, apartments, attracted me the most just because it ended up feeling so personal. You go into an apartment building, I was able to easily translate it to what I would like here, what I didn't like, what's happening in this neighborhood, is there a grocery store nearby, is there transit? You know, it just felt like something that was, you know, so easy to relate to, as opposed to some of the uh, industrial that I'd been involved in earlier in my career. I've actually heard that from numerous apartment owners. The reason they got into it is because it's real estate they could understand and retail to a certain degree, but you know, your average person has no connection to industrial real estate. You know, it's definitely its own little world. Yeah, exactly. And the expense side's fun too, because you don't get to play with that as much on the industrial and uh, retail and office side. But here, you know, you, you're with three caps and four caps these days that apartments are being valued at, at least in Toronto. To be able to make little changes on the expense side and some savings, it can translate into big value increases. But- so... Utilities, yeah. all kinds of things like that. Yeah, for comparison's sake, I mean, on a older build product, you'll see expense ratios of fifty percent of the income being used for expenses. Whereas brand new build in you know warmer climates like Vancouver, you'll see it in the low twenties, and that's a huge gap to play with. And when you're applying three caps to it, every little inch you take it adds up to real value. 
Yeah, exactly. And it's, uh, you know, one, one of the more unique aspects to our space. It was interesting to see this morning, too, that Canadian residents, according to that survey by answered by 20,000 residents, are welcoming uh, submetering of utilities, water, maybe even thermal and hydro as well, which is electricity in, in Ontario. That's a good sign because that will lead to, or should, if people change their behavior, lower expensive is for everyone. And just holistically positive for the environment at large, if people are in control of their own electricity or their, their utility costs, they're likely going to turn the lights off and turn the temperature down or up, depending on the circumstances, and be just generally better for everybody. Jumping back a little bit, before you, we get too much into the weeds, was your first job after your MBA at RealStar, or did you jump around a little bit? Like, How did you end up where you are today? First job was RealStar. I quickly realized the apartment space was an interesting one, and they were a big player in that space, and an incredible opportunity came along. So I consider myself really fortunate to... I've met them at the right time. Well, both they were growing. They were growing a private equity platform, and they were looking for someone with my skill set to uh, help them build that out. And it's been eight, nine years now, and a really good time together. And so how big is RealStar? How many units? We're about 25,000 units under management now uh, with ownership positions in uh, a lot of that. So we're one of the, probably the five bigger players uh, across the country. And were you always before when you joined? How big was RealStar when you joined? Let's maybe put it that way. We have been pretty consistent at that level. What's changed is our ownership stake in those units under management. There's a greater percentage now that we have an ownership stake in. Previously, we did a lot of third-party property and asset management for institutional types. And more and more, those guys are going in-house. You'll see the Sun Lifes of the world now have Bental and the BCIMCs of the world have Quadreal. So we've been pretty consistent, which is great from an organizational standpoint. I mean, it means that we're not having to scale up and scale down uh, with our headcount internally. So as the co-chair of the, the forum today, I'm sure you've noticed that one of the overarching themes is affordability as has been present at you know, a number of forums that are apartment-focused. But what's RealStar's position on affordability or plan to address that issue? Well, we try to uh, participate in increasing supply as much as we can. So you know, Doug Ford hit on some important topics this morning already. Uh, as a market participant, you know, what we can do is we can really do our best to increase supply because I do believe in the trickle-down effect and that if you free up apartments at a more affordable level, say call it, you know, a thousand to twelve hundred dollar rents by creating units in the fifteen hundred to seventeen hundred dollar rent range that people will move up into those units, then you free up apartments in that a thousand to twelve hundred dollar range. So we try to use various purchase strategies like the Ford purchase to help builders increase supply of purpose built. So that's can you explain you know, can you explain a little bit more what, what that means and how you go about finding the units or finding the, the, the sites and, and approaching the developers and just what your strategy is. Yeah, it's so I think a lot of it boils down to relationships in particular with developers that we've worked with previously in areas that were big believers will be great neighborhoods in the long term. So, so are you identifying that they own the land and you're coming to them at that point saying, hey, if you build this and build it like this, I will buy it for you at this cap rate, you know, kind of almost before they've even put a shovel in the ground? Yes, and other times it can be six months from when they're about to finish construction or three months from when they're about to finish construction. So it's really a sliding scale. It can be when they've just bought the land or it can be later after they've had an idea that they're already going to build rental, but 
they realize they might not want to hold it forever. So right. in terms of addressing the affordability issues, it's more of the upfront decision between you know, condo versus uh, rental. So you're, giving, you're giving that developer the, the exit. That exactly. they don't have to worry about, you know, selling condo units versus, you know, going through a lease up risk and all that kind of stuff. Because you're buying them vacant, right? Like you're you're acquiring them without a tenant. Exactly. We acquire, we lease it up, so they don't have to worry about the whole management platform, which I think can be daunting for someone who hasn't done a lease up before. And then you don't have to worry about that. You just de-risk it. For someone who has, say, four or five projects on the go, maybe one of them they just say that I don't want to build us out as condo, or I don't want to worry about this lease up myself. And so would love to work with real Do you still it. get resistance though? Cause then we earlier in one of the, one of the panels today, they were talking about, you know, the, you can sell condo units at a thousand bucks a foot, but you, you're not selling, you're not buying like real stars, not buying those apartment buildings no. at that same price. So do developers kind of look at you and go, yeah, that's nice. You can give me the certainty of exit, but I can still sell it for a lot more money as a condo. So thank you, but no thanks. You definitely get that resistance. And in particular in the cities where affordability is, the biggest the challenge. Worst, so yeah. Toronto is there a combat to that? I mean, at some point, you just can't buy it at a, at a certain level, right? Like you have your ceiling, yeah. but how do you? How would you address those sort of objections? Well, I think that again, it's if they've got a machine that they're building out, then maybe they don't want to take the risk on sales on five buildings at the same time, and so one of them they'd be more likely to go rental with. Or if it's a two-phase project, maybe there's some construction cost savings if you build both phases at the same time, but they can't do the pre-sales for both buildings at the same time. So try to get creative and, and talking to people about where there might be a deal if there isn't one. And how much risk do you take on in that structure? Obviously, you're taking lease-up risk. I guess you're taking governmental risk if there was a change in you know, rent control or you know, vacancy decontrol, the other big bad word. How much risk do you see on your side of the plate when you structure it that way? Well, and maybe more interesting, what kind of caveats or exits are you putting in your contracts? Being the lawyer, what are you putting in there that allows you to kind of say, mm, I'm out of this at any particular point in the, in the development? Yeah, well, not much in terms of caveats and abilities to exit because the developer needs to take this contract and get financing on its basis and no good lender as you guys know, will finance their construction if we decide we can walk away 12 months before the project's completed. So there's very few outs. You know, it needs to be built according to the plans and specs that are agreed to along you know, certain timelines. And if that's not happening, then you know, I think both parties would agree that you know, maybe it's time to move on. We do target a higher return for these, which Adam, you hit on, just because there's more risk, right? You don't know where interest rates are going to be. You can hedge that, but inevitably interest rates impact cap rates, which you can't hedge. And so you're taking a risk on where cap rates will be, you know, what your lease up will be. Maybe you're building that's ahead of its time and you're, having, you're thinking you're going to be commanding a huge premium, but you don't really know for sure if you will command that premium. So definitely those risks and you know, political risk is one that's, I think, on the back of everyone's mind right now, and that's probably connected to the affordability issue. And you know, I think some people are a little bit nervous after seeing New York rules recently and some, some other rules in Berlin that were brought in by governments. It's uh, housing is politicized. And so we are in a space of real estate that is different than all these other real estate asset classes. And I think we need to respect it's personal. that. Yeah. Can you, can you expand that. on what, what legislation was passed in those two, those two places you, you listed? Berlin? In, yeah, just vaguely, just, just in general. In general, I think my recollection is Berlin really it's a rent freeze, so no rent escalations. And New York, I believe, is a, is a, a form of vacancy decontrol in some units. 
So meaning if people move out, you can't take the rents to market. And that's, again, a specified stock in New York. But, you know, those are changes that were obviously brought on by affordability issues. And just something to be cognizant of here in Canada when, you know, there can always be government change. And you want to make sure you're doing everything you can to avoid getting sideswiped by something like that. It was nice this morning to hear Doug Ford talking about supply side being the solution for affordability, you know, at least within with Ontario anyway, obviously speaking to just Ontario. But it was nice to hear that because there's been so much work on trying to control demand, which is, is difficult to do and been ineffective in the past. Are you building units at different price points or is it, or is it strictly a model of the, the trickle down? If you can keep on building top market units that the 1960s build, we become more affordable just through overwhelming uh, supply. We're exploring it is what I'll say. And so far, the market forces have been such that in order to be competitive and overcome what we talked about before in terms of convincing people to build rental instead of condo, we're more relying on that trickle-down effect and you know, building market rental units. In terms of building more affordable, I think it's a, it's a tremendous opportunity. You know, there's the CMHC direct lending program that we've definitely explored with certain developers and even talk to CMHC about how flexible they can be on that, just because it's a very high LTV program that is great for the developer, but might not be as suitable for a long-term buyer to have you know, LTVs up in that 80% plus range. So we definitely want to participate in that space. And you know, sometimes it ends up being, if you participate in that space uh, out in the suburbs, just market housing in effect in the suburbs is less expensive than market housing in the downtown core. So just Land prices, yeah. just in general, have such a ma- major impact on that, which always somehow gets, seems to get forgotten when you start talking about affordability. It's it's yeah. uh, it's a major it's a major component of the costs, right? Yeah, for sure. So you're you're in acquisition mode now through forward sales or just you know traditional buys. What markets are you most bullish on? I think we're feeling good uh, across the country right now. I'm you know take it from uh, Nova Scotia, Halifax, through Quebec. Ontario's stronger than we've ever seen it, really. Prairie provinces as well. You know, Alberta has seen some challenges, definitely. And I think we're probably on a digest mode in Alberta because we did make some acquisitions in, in 2018, and we want to see how that pencils out and see how pipelines are addressed longer term. But I think that being said, there's some great opportunities uh, deal by deal if you look at that in Calgary and Edmonton, if you can get you can get more yield there. And you just have to be attentive to where the market's going and making make sure you're getting the deal that you think you're getting. And then Vancouver's, uh, you know, as as usual, quite quite expensive. I was about to ask you if, uh, if you, you left, you left one out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is there a minimum threshold for cap rate and return that you operate under with you when you're modeling? What we try to do is have a distribution to our investors, and what well, we do have a distribution to our investors, and so low cap rates make that more challenging. You know, in Vancouver, it's more challenging to have uh, an income return. It's all about the the capital return in that environment, and so uh, you can get the you know the yield up, but it takes some time and depends on how long your hold period is to affect that. So you know, we don't have a minimum cap rate, but I don't think you know we'd want we want to be balanced is what we always want to be. So if you've got some two caps and three caps, then maybe you want some five caps as well, so that. At the end of the day, you're getting a uh, well-diversified portfolio. Do you find yourself resisting the urge to extend that hold period just to make it work? Because if you take 20 years, it probably makes more sense than if you're using 10 or 5. 
Yeah, I think it, a lot of that obviously depends on the investor's appetite for holding the asset over that length of time. And I think a lot of people, rightfully so, want to see you know, values crystallized, business plans proven out. But at the same time, you know, if these are irreplaceable assets, you know, you can you can have conversations about how maybe it's worthwhile kicking and out. And by irre- irreplaceable, you mean just sort of center ice on transit. You know, exactly. Brand new. You can't find it anywhere yeah, else. Yeah, and we talked about it today that you know, over a thousand dollars a square foot, it's not going to make sense in certain markets to build uh, purpose-built rental. You're building below today's cap rates. Yeah. So you mentioned uh, crystallizing profits. Are you disposing of assets right now? We are always listening and you know uh, doing our job, which is evaluating which assets might be ripe for sale and talking to our investors about their appetite for that. So that's definitely part of our mandate and we're always looking at our portfolio and fine-tuning. So yes, answer your question. <laughs> and you do get unsolicited conversation or offers as well, obviously in properties that maybe we're on the radar? Yeah, I think we get some un- unsolicited offers, but mostly we do try to deal through uh, brokers just because they've their fingers on the pulse. They've got a good sense for uh, where the market is going and you know representing institutional money, you want to be careful to make sure that someone who has their finger on the pulse of exactly where the market is on any given day is the one who's got your interests in mind. I guess we didn't really talk too much about you know the asset management aspect of Realstar, property management aspect of Realstar. You've got a great reputation in the marketplace. Do you want to tell us the secret sauce to uh, what you're doing to beat competitors or deserve the reputation? Oh, that's, uh, that's the secret sauce, Adam. No, it's, I think it starts at the top and from the founders, Wayne, Wayne Squibb and Jonas Prince, who have lived and breathed uh, this asset class now for 40 plus years and you know understand that it's a customer service based discipline property management you know they're not tenants they they're residents and you want to make them have a wonderful experience in your building so starting from when you you know step out of your car onto the curb all the way till when you get into your suite so you know try to make a good end to end customer service experience Keeping in mind, obviously, that it isn't a hotel, but you know, have that focus on sales and customer service at front of mind. Do you think it matters? Like, I know you have to say yes to that, but maybe rephrase that question. <laughs> if you've got four fairly identical buildings, sort of side by side by side in the same location, you know, yada yada yada. One's got Starlight and Real Star and Capreet and Homestead slapped on the side of them, and I'm not saying those are four in particular. But if, would you think a tenant goes, oh, you know, those guys, that one's where I want to live because I know that they've got a reputation for higher management, or does it just come down to down to price? No, I think you make a good point. That was highlighted this morning, interestingly, in that resident survey that no one really cares when they're looking for an apartment, who the property manager is or potentially the owner, if it's not the a separate property management company. But it should, right? It Notionally, should. it should. They it shouldn't matter. They are different. They Absolutely. Are, but the word are different. I think, would, uh, I think it's retention. So it probably speaks to retention more so than attracting new residents at that price point, which if you're doing a good job retaining, then you're cutting your costs and arguably in, in-house, you can, you can increase your rents if you're doing a good job retaining because people realize, well, I, I, you know, if Homestead's or I won't pick on anyone yeah, next door, yeah. uh, not to say I'll just pick on everyone. Yeah, let's just anybody. Uh, yeah. They are charging less next door. I might want to stay here anyway because I feel like, I don't know, my lawn's nicer. Yeah. James, I know you've got duties as a co-chair of this event. So we thank you for the time that you could uh, share with us. So thanks for coming to the podcast. Really appreciate it. 
I had a lot of fun. Let's do it again, guys. <laughs> Thank we'll do, you, and keep it up. Maybe we'll do a part two. We'll just keep going the same conversation. Yeah, amazing. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Jamie. Thanks to First National for powering the podcast, and thank you for the Canadian Department Investment Conference for having us here today. Cheers. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the CRE Podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.